And now we open the scriptures to Ephesians in six Sundays. How can we do Ephesians in six Sundays? Well, easy. We've done all of chapter five a lot in the last several years. We've done a lot in close theological extraction of Ephesians 5 because we've been talking about the Christian spiritual life. And this is your classic location that teaches most explicitly what it is to be filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5. We've talked a lot about Ephesians 6, which in verse 10 talks about the, the war, our warfare. And spiritual warfare, the classic location in the New Testament to talk about spiritual warfare is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 the full armor of God pastor. So we are very familiar with these things, but the doctrinal foundation in chapters one through three, we haven't trafficked in as much because it is not primarily applicational. It's the foundational doctrinal content. And that's what we're doing, especially today and next Sunday, as we look in Ephesians in six Sundays. This is, of course, the Christian life of Paul, in which we're looking at the letter Paul, would have, Paul wrote in the time, in the sequence of his life, that he wrote it. And we're out of the book of Acts because Paul is now imprisoned in Rome beyond what Acts teaches. And he, but he is in prison in Rome, and we're, writing, we're going through the prison epistles. And so we've done Colossians, we'll do Ephesians, and then Philippians. We've, we've, in Colossians, we also did Philemon. And, uh, and that's, the, that's what's going on with uh, this study. So um, now I want to show you what I find to be a very helpful, helpful outline. We're going to look at the prayer, especially in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul's prayer. And we're going to ask the theological question, what does Paul pray for? Or what is a Christian prayer supposed to be focused on? Or how can I pray for one another? These are great things to think about because that question, these questions are answered in Ephesians 1. But we're talking about the prayer for spiritual growth and blessing that Paul prays. And it is some of the most theologically dense material in the New Testament, as it is also in Colossians 1, where he does the same thing. And people have said Philipp or Ephesians and Colossians are almost um, mirror images or almost like, uh, like Ephesians is written or Colossians is written to mirror Ephesians or something. No, it's the same writer in the same phase of his ministry, possibly days or weeks apart, but writing to different communities with generally the same content, though different emphases. So today we're talking about the prayer for spiritual growth and blessing. And here is Ephesians outlined. The whole book of Ephesians, all six chapters of the pinnacle of Paul's revelation outlined for you um, in two easy steps. The first is the privileges of the church. A timely title for the first section, the privileges of the church. And that's Ephesians chapter one, verse one through three, verse 21. It's not about race. It's not about culture. It's not about genetics. It's not about uh, Jew or Greek or barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ, the privileges of the church, which is the foundational doctrinal content that Paul is teaching in order to get the applicational section of part two. And here's my summary. We are a body as the church, which is the thematic focus, the church, the universal church. We're a body composed of individual members who are in Christ. That's really important to catch. It is the one and the many when you talk about the universal church. Are you the church? Yes, in the sense that I am a member of the body of Christ. Paul is not teaching the local church in Ephesians. He teaches the local church in the pastoral epistles and in Thessalonians and other places. But here he is talking about the theology, the doctrine of the church, the ecclesia, the universal body of Christ. And so we're a body composed 
of individual members who are in Christ, and our position in Christ is the basis for God's great blessings. Verses 3 through 14, the long sentence that we spent last Sunday on. And these blessings may be known and understood through God's revelation. You can know what you have in Christ because of God's revelation. And this is very interesting in the country and the time in which you live. If you don't pay attention to God's revelation, if you don't get out the shovel and dig or the bulldozer and really excavate, if you don't go into the text and chase down the hard things that Paul says, then you miss the revelation God has for you. It's trapped in the mystery of language. Language is a mystery in one sense because we don't know why it works. No matter how sophisticated we get in our linguistic study, we don't really understand it. But it's very simple another way. When somebody says something in language, by God's design, it's capable of transmitting the thought closely enough that you have to the other person. It does have effect. But, if, but here's the way language also works. If you take that language and you don't listen to it, if you don't pay attention, if you shut the book and say no, then you don't get the idea the other person had. And the blessings and the privileges that Christians have are not visible. They're not visible. They're not Benny Hens Jet. They're not the things that are on TV that people say, well, if you really get right with the Lord, then you'll really get blessing. It's not. It's not visible. There are spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Pastor, is, is it none of it visible? It's not. It's not a visible factor in in Ephesians. My favorite command right now to think about is Colossians 3.1. Keep on, if you're dead in Christ, if you're raised with Christ, then keep on seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Who's seen that? Who's seen Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father? Stephen. Thought I was going to say nobody. Stephen saw him. He stood up. Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father, apparently in salute in honor of Stephen and his testimony for Christ, even as the rocks began to fly and they killed him, the first martyr of the body of Christ, of the church. This ministry is, um, this is the, um, So y'all just saw Lyme disease happen. That's what that looks like. I just completely forgot what I was saying. Mark, what was I saying? You know. Oh, he's got Lyme disease too. We're a body composed of individual members who are in Christ. Position in Christ is the basis for God's great blessings, which may be known and understood through God's revelation. That's what I was talking about. You can't see the blessings. You can't see God where Christ is. You can only see what you can see. And this is where Satan gets us. As we get distracted, it's, it's, it's just true. We get distracted by what we can see, but we're not thinking about the things above where Christ is. And if that's true, if you can't see what you're supposed to be focused on, what, what, what does that imply about your life? You have to make it about the word of God. You have to make it about the spiritual appraisal of spiritual truth in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's our life. That's radical. That is not American Christendom. That is biblical Christianity. And so it's the invisible. And you can't see that I'm struggling <laughs> sometimes to stay hold of the, uh, of the thread. But the thread was that you can't see these things which we are told about. And that's why Paul says them. And by the way, that's one of the reasons the grammar is so dense and the language is challenging. And I challenge you that um, we're not going to have near time 
to do the fun. I mean, Ephesians is a book to spend six years on, okay? But we're not going to spend six years on it. We're spending six Sundays. All right. The second part of Ephesians, you have the privileges of the church, our position in Christ, our riches in him, which we need to memorize Ephesians 1 through 3. At least one of us definitely needs to memorize Ephesians 1 through 3, right? I mean, maybe it's you. Maybe it's me. We need to memorize this so we can think about it and reflect on it. But then you have the practice of the church. This is an amazing outline when you think about how Paul writes. He always does this doctrine and then application. Doctrine and then application. Romans 1 through 12 or 1 through 11, Romans 12 through 16. Present your bodies as a living holy sacrifice as a consequence of all that preceded in God's plan of justification and sanctification. Now, the practice of the church is the part that we hear the how to, the what to do, all these things that um, very often fill sermons. But what happens if you don't have the doctrinal basis, the fuel that lights off the rocket that lets you do the things you're supposed to do? Well, you end up with a shallow silliness, a shallow Christianity. And that's, again, my critique. That's my critique of the cultural Christianity that I know, that I've experienced, that I've seen. Cultural Christianity is a lot of practice and not a lot of principle. A lot of doing, not a lot of doctrine. Let me see if I could alliterate some more. So the practice of the church in four through six, chapters four through six. And this summarizes this way. The church has a prescribed way of life in which we grow and serve after the pattern of the son. That's Jesus in imitation of our heavenly father. That's God, the father, according to the power we receive through the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian, but it's a Trinitarian walk of life. Be filled by the spirit, imitate God as beloved children as you imitate Jesus Christ. So this is the outline of Ephesians, and we can even zoom in a little bit. In our section here, we're talking about the privileges of the church in Ephesians 1, chapters 1 through 3. Now, what's chapter 4 through 6? The practice of the church. What's chapters 1 through 3? The privileges of the church. Let's try it again. What's chapters 1 through 3? The privileges of the church. And what's chapters 4 through 6? The pra- you almost have Ephesians memorized. Now, never let it be said, well, we don't really know what he's talking about. We're talking about Ephesians 1 through 3, the, practi- the privileges of the church, and Ephesians 4 through 6, the practices of the church. We might review that. We'll, we might have to inculcate that a little bit. In terms of the privileges, you have in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 1, an introduction. And then what we did last Sunday, praise for God's blessings through Christ. And we said, because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You know that you have these spiritual blessings, all the things that Paul describes. And the big picture was that God is blessing you through his son. And I've said, it's kind of like you're caught in a crossfire of what Jesus is talking about in John 17. Father, glorify me with the glory I had before the foundation of the world. Glorify me with that glory and I will glorify you. For example, this is what I've done. You gave me these people. I told them about you and glorified you. Now they're glorifying you. Give me some more people so I can glorify you. And so God glorify me so I can glorify you back. It's a reciprocation. That's the nature of this relationship. And if you think about it, this is how a lot of relationships work. Give me something I can use to to throw back at you. Bless me. I'm going to turn it around to bless you. You know, that's the idea of a loving relationship. Well, you're caught in between the father and the son now, because through Jesus Christ, the father is maxing you out. That's the idea of the spiritual blessings that we have because of our position in Christ. And that is verses three through 14. And now we're going to have Paul's prayer life. Paul's prayer life, the prayer for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. 
This is unacceptable. This is absolutely unacceptable. All right. Prayer for a spirit of wisdom and the prayer isn't unacceptable. Ignoring it is. Paul's prayer for a spirit of wisdom and revelation is going to occupy our day uh, today for the most part. In the next section on the privileges, you have chapter two, verses one through 10. And this breaks out nicely too. Chapter two is really a neat package. You have our individual privileges, church age believers, our individual privilege, and it can't have been there before as he's going to get to in chapter three. There was no such thing as the church before the Holy Spirit. There was no such thing as the church before the Holy Spirit was adding people to Christ that didn't exist. There were Old Testament saints. There was God's uh, program before Israel that he dealt with the patriarchs. There was God's program with Israel as he set up at Mount Sinai, a state, the national uh, people that would be a theocracy. But this is not what we're doing today. And this is why Paul is so exciting in Ephesians because he's talking about this mystery, which he calls the church. So you have in verses one through 10, our individual privilege. And then in 11 through 22, our corporate privilege. You have the individual walk and then the corporate thing. And it's the one and the many all through, actually all through the scriptures, all through the scriptures. You know, in Chronicles, very often the critique the prophets offer of Israel and its disobedience will be of the king. Very, not always, but very often there will be a criticism of the king. In Kings, in the same exact story, but a different writing, a different telling of the history, a lot of the same language, but it's an echo. In the king's record, it'll be the nation chased after idols. The nation didn't walk after their fathers. The king didn't behave like David. The nation didn't act. And, and the, what, what I'm saying is the Bible holds everybody accountable. The kings are responsible to lead and the people are responsible to follow, especially Yahweh. But they are all turning aside. And this is the idea of the one and the many. It's all through the Bible. How does Adam fall? Adam makes the choice and we're, we're told through the rest of the Bible, it's Adam's sin, not the woman's. She sinned first, but it's Adam's sin that has killed us. Uh, Romans 5.12, it's Adam's sin. But how did you end up with Adam's sin? Peer pressure. I mean, for lack of a better cultural term, you say peer pressure today and all the kids' eyes glaze over. Yeah, we heard all about it, peer pressure. Don't do drugs. How about if you join the world, then you don't love God. That's what I mean by peer pressure. If you follow the leadings of others away from God, instead of following God, which leads you away from the behaviors of others, then you're de demonstrating that you don't love God. And you're, that's, that's, that's in first John. And so the corporate pr privilege um, uh, and the individual privilege is pointing at the one and the many. In the Garden of Eden, you had one man and one woman, but they together made a marriage. That's right. The first marriage was, was invented on day six um, after a little bit of surgery and anesthesia for Adam. Marriage was invented when woman was invented. Woman was invented to marry man. That was the design. That's what God made woman for as man's helpmeet. Now, this marriage was now a two, not just a one. It's two people, but there's the union of the two into, uh, of, of both parties into one thing. And so now you've got the one and the many and Satan attacks the many. He, he gets the woman to use her influence to attack the man. That's how he got us. He took the fact that you've got two ones that have become one many, two that became a, two individuals became a group and he used the individual attack on one to bring the whole group down. 
by attacking the other. And that's the dynamics. This is biblical, if you will. I hate the phrase, the word, but it's sociology. This is the relationship of groups. Now, sociology, I took a class and it was forced on me. And so I had to, to get the diploma I wanted. And it, it's soft science, trying to be hard science where we get real data and, uh, and try to come up with, uh, with patterns and models for group behaviors and stuff. And I understand the, uh, the effort to apply um, um, evolutionary psychology to groups. And I, I get it. I, I get what that is. But what I'm talking about is something a little bit um, um, less regimented and a little bit more obvious is that you have individuals that compose groups. God holds individuals accountable and he holds groups accountable and he's able to do that righteously with justice. Habakkuk in a minority stands on the temple. God, how long? God's like, not long, not much longer. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. I'm dealing with the group, but Lord, what about we individuals who are righteous? Don't worry about it. The righteous will live by faith. That's the answer of God in summarizing the book of Habakkuk. And so this is a great theme through all of scripture. And you see it really clearly in Ephesians chapter two. In chapter three, verses one through 13, you have Paul's most explicit place in the New Testament where he talks about the mystery, which is the church, the mystery of the church, something that was not known by the prophets beforehand. And it is not Jesus there, it is tied to the coming of the Lord Jesus. It is our identity in Jesus, but he specifically says it's the Gentiles united to Christ with the Jews who are united to Christ in one new man, one body, the church. Jews and Gentiles who are no longer identified by those, those groups, but now our identity is Christ, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. And that's the mystery. And mystery just means, it means... Not the secret knowledge that you have to give the password to get into the cult. That's the mystery religions, okay? What Paul is talking about is information that had not yet been revealed that he has been given by the Lord Jesus to share with the church. It's kind of like Exodus. I'm sorry, like Genesis. In the Exodus generation, Moses wrote Genesis to tell Israel who they are. Who are we? That's what That's what. Genesis is, it's the, think of the original audience. It's the Exodus generation coming to Sinai and getting the law from God and hearing the mouth of God. And where did we come from? And so that's what, that's the purpose I am convinced of Genesis. It's really important to understand that because it makes Deuteronomy what it is, the focus of the Old Testament as the covenant document, the suzerain vassal treaty between Israel and Yahweh. And that, and everything, all the prophets are calling Israel, the nation back to that. That's the, that's the design of the Old Testament. So Genesis, which is so focal, chapters one through 11, give you a biblical worldview. You understand the God that we serve and your role with him sufficiently from Genesis one through 11 to answer most of Satan's attacks, if not all of them. The, the primordial history is not myth. It's not legend. It's worldview formation from where we've come from. A revisionist history will always attack that. But see, long, long illustration, but Genesis is written by Moses in the Exodus generation to tell them who they are. Ephesians is written in the first generation of the church, the first century of the church, so that we'll know what the church is, so we'll know who we are. I'm not calling it the Genesis of the church or anything like that. I'm saying it's got a similar purpose to the book of Genesis. And we would not know if Paul had not told us. We would have hints from John 7 uh, and 28. The Holy Spirit wasn't yet given because Christ wasn't yet glorified. Deal with it. 
He wasn't yet given. People in the Old Testament, well, what about David was filled with the Spirit? Yeah, we know the names of the people in the Old Testament that were filled with the Spirit. There's a handful. It was a specific purpose. God had a design for their thing. And, and, uh, and it's a very different thing. The Holy Spirit set upon Saul so he could rally an army. And then when Saul disobeyed God, the Holy Spirit left Saul and then went to David. And now David is going to be the king. That is a totally different arrangement with the third person of the Trinity than we have today. Because there's something true for me and you that wasn't true for Saul. Check it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They had not drunk of the spirit so that they were not one with Christ, united to Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. We are in Christ and all people, Jews and Gentiles are in Christ. Now, if you've never heard that before, it's because I'm doing work with you. We're doing work that Americans tend to not be willing to do. It is called hermeneutics. It is called the, the faithful and effort laden interpretation of the scriptures in the intent of the author pushing the details and understanding the details as the author presents them. And you really have to deal with 3, 1 through 13, that the church is a mystery. And then Paul prays for God's fullness. Is that two L's in fullness? I, I, I struggled over that. Anyway, fullness in the church. God's, can't do it. God's fullness in the church in verses 3, 14 through 21, the full expression of the character of God, of the love of God, of the blessings of God, that God would have his way. Is that what you want? That's what Paul wants for you. And he has two prayers in Ephesians to that end. And uh, the second half of uh, the, the big walk, you have the practice of the church. And maybe we'll talk about that next hour. Let's look at the big prayer. Ephesians 1.15 saith, on account of this, I also, the blessings that we have in chapter uh, three, chapter one, three through 14, on account of these spiritual blessings that the father's given us through Christ, I also, after hearing about you, Ephesians, your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love which you have toward all the saints, that the Holy Spirit is working in you. And so there's momentum and he's only talking to Christians, therefore, because of this growth, because of this initial Christian expression, they're new. Everybody in Paul's generation was new. Okay. Um, well, maybe not quite everybody, but the people he's writing to generally new Christians compared to, uh, believers that have been walking with the Lord for decades. On account of this, after hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love, which you have toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks concerning you. Main verb in this is I don't cease. I don't stop. That's the main Greek verb. And the completion of that thought is giving thanks. So it's called a, a composite, but the, the thing that we kind of gloss over, our eyes kind of glaze over is I don't stop. I don't stop. Powo, powo my, I don't stop giving thanks concerning you, making mention of you in my prayers. So why is Paul grateful? What drives Paul? What motivates Paul? What gets him excited? Why does he rejoice? What is his excitement in, the, in his life about? It's the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit in the character of Jesus Christ visible and evident in the lives of other believers. This fires him up and it makes him rejoice and it makes him be consistent in his prayers. I do not cease giving thanks concerning you, making mention of you in my prayers that, and this is the prayer. This is the content that he asks on their behalf that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who does Paul pray to God, the father, almost exclusively. There are a couple places where you can see him talking to Jesus, but for the most part, Paul addresses the father 
And I think this has to do with the Son at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And we go to the Father's throne in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit talking to God the Father who, if you will, is holding court in the heavenly throne room. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give. My prayer is that you get something. What does Paul want his people to get? What does David Rosen want his people to get? In a sheepdog, lesser sense, understand, we're under the, the Lord Jesus, under the apostles. But boy, do I want this for you? Do you want this for me? Do you want this for one another? That he will give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the spiritual knowledge or the epignosis knowledge of him. That he will give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the spiritual knowledge of him. That's what Paul wants for his fellow believers in Jesus Christ. After having been enlightened, what? The eyes of your heart having been enlightened unto the end that you know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power unto us who believe according to the work of the strength of his might. Now, I just told you Paul's prayers will have a lot of dense content. We just said so many nouns and adjectives and phrases that modify them. But notice that it's pretty simple to summarize the prayer, that you would know God and that you would be characterized by the character of God because you know what you know about God. In other words, all invisible stuff, all things that you cannot play, you cannot, you cannot go, go talk to someone and, and have unless you're with God's people and you're talking about God's things. This is not t watching TV and just it, it kind of osmotically happens. This is the study of God's word producing a perspective and therefore a worldview about God's things and about everything. And so it really is an appeal that we all become theologians in the sense that, I mean, you know, God, you know, about God, you know, God's word. That's what God is asking for through all this. Now, let's put the whole prayer together. I do not cease giving thanks concerning you. Hey, Joel, notice how that one's set up for the, okay. I don't cease giving thanks concerning you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what I pray, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the spiritual knowledge of him. Now, my favorite expositor or a commentator, Greek scholar on the book of Ephesians is Harold Honer. And he says this probably refers to God, the Holy Spirit, that Paul is asking for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And I absolutely categorically disagree with him in context. I believe that the writer of this knows they've already received the Holy Spirit because he wrote 1 Corinthians and we're in the life of Paul. He already wrote 1 Corinthians. This is after. I think this is the same sense that he uses spirit in Ephesians 2, where he's talking about worldview. He's talking about the attitude, the content or the furniture of the arrangement of your inner life, your thought life, that you would be characterized with this in the immaterial man in you. That sense of spirit. Spirit is one of the most, pneuma is one of the most flexible words in the New Testament. It means wind. It means breath. I forget which preacher, which false preacher the other day uh, did some holy pneuma uh, blowing COVID-19 away. COVID-19. <laughs> you ever see that? YouTube it, man. It's hilarious. Um, I know the guy's name. I know the name of the false teacher that said that. And anybody that watches this guy, just look in his eyes. Anyway, <laughs> and then change the channel. There's lots of words, uses of the word pneuma, spirit, wind, breath, air in your tires. I mean, all pneumatic, 
Pneuma is very flexible as a term. And so every time you see it, when Paul writes, he's not necessarily talking about the third person of the Trinity or the new nature you receive when you first believed, which is another use of pneuma, the human spirit. Here he's talking about the attitude. I think the best word today is worldview that you have, this set, the the approach that you take to life because of what is charged within your human spirit in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So I think it's, it's, it's related to the Holy Spirit. It's re- related to the human spirit, but it's the attitude, the sense of the way you live your life, the, um, the desires you have, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the spiritual knowledge of him, because you're loaded with this pneumaticos. Here he says epinosis, which I think means knowledge directed toward God. I think that's the best way to understand epinosis to summarize what we could spend six weeks talking about. Epinosis is probably knowledge that is of a specific nature of God. And it doesn't mean knowing about him. It means knowing him. It means having a personal relationship with him through what he said. And here's what, uh, what, what we have to interpret a little bit. Because the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. There is a method Paul proposes for having this spirit of wisdom and revelation. Revelation means knowing something you couldn't know. It doesn't mean you become a prophet and receive special revelation. It means that you are characterized in your spirit by God's special revelation, which we have here in Paul's writing. And that would be the place I would go to for authoritative special revelation, the scriptures. But he says, because the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, this is why you will have this spirit. It's a it's a an adverbial participle. It has to be modified. The word fotizo to enlighten. And it means that this is the cause, the reason why you have this spirit of wisdom. So we know how God gives it, that you, he opens your eyes. He opens your eyes of your heart, if you will. The eyes of your heart have been opened or enlightened unto the end that you know something, that you know something. Oh, you know, you, you Christians that study the Bible like you do are just trying to get smart. You're just trying to know. I want to have eternal life. And I mean, enjoy it. I want the life. I want to live the life. Romans 8 says, walk, be led by the spirit or you're walking in death. He's talking to Christians. Jesus says, this is life that they know you. And so here it is. This is the life that you enjoy this spirit of wisdom and revelation because the eyes of your heart have been opened or enlightened to the end that you know what is the hope of his calling the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And thirdly, what is the surpassing greatness of his power unto us who believe? The word hyperbole comes from the word surpassing. In Greek, it's hyperbolo. Hooper means where we get the word super or over or beyond. Balo, Greekish, means to throw. The Greek students remember that from long ago. We throw the balo. Balo means to throw. So this word in its etymology means to throw beyond like a javelin thrower that went beyond the last javelin he he hooper ballo he threw beyond and so this comes to mean and it does mean surpassing it means beyond i think it's pretty to know the etymology of this word what is the surpassing greatness of god's power unto us who believe according to the work of the of the strength of his might and then paul is going to do a little excursus on how we know god's strength and that's a good place for us to pause uh, to, uh, to get ready to refit and, uh, and, and take it up again next hour. What is this strength of God? This is a reference to God's omnipotence. This is a reference to God's power demonstrated through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And friends, even unbelievers are on record. They're, on, they're responsible to know the power of God because they see his creation. But you who believe and yet doubt God's ability, doubt his sufficiency, we who fall short on this from time to time, this is a very important doctrine for us. It's very simple. You know, back in Longview, Texas, Mrs. Elmore's class, we're talking about the omnipotence of God, learning about the essence box. I'm eight years old, trying not to look at my watch because I'm an eight-year-old. We're talking about omnipotence. I knew what omnipotence was back then. Do you know that every time we doubt God, we're doubting his omnipotence? Every time we doubt, every time we, we're worried, every time we're afraid, what man can do to me, it's a test of our faith in this attribute of God's essence. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which directly impacts your eternity, is proof, Paul will say, of the power of God for us who believe. And that is the kind of sand in our boots that we need in the time in which we live. We need to be courageous. We need to be fortified. We need to be strong. And we'll be strong because we're strong in God's power and God's omnipotence because we're depending on him. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful prayer of the Apostle Paul, which so helps us organize our thoughts about what life is really for, why we're here. And I do pray that you'll give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the a spiritual knowledge of you and that we will know you. And by that spirit, we'll be able to um, have our hearts open always to this wonderful truth of your power, of your inheritance, of your love. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.